0: This is Africa Digest.
1: Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective and broadcasting from Johannesburg. We're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa. My name is Zikwa Miso, driving the show with Onilin Sinzi, Lissani and Musibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa Digest this hour, Sierra Leone is to hold a presidential run-off vote on March 27th. Today marks the start of the third annual anti-racism week in South Africa. In your economic news, Energy Commercial Bank of Ghana is to raise 75 million US dollars through an initial public offering. And in your walk, a Springbok coach is to meet with the former national coaches to discuss the challenges which await him in his new role. It's time now for our News Bulletin with Anili.
2: Thank you, Zucona. Angela Merkel has been sworn in as German Chancellor for a fourth term. She took the oath in front of the Speaker of Parliament. The coalition between her Conservatives and the Social Democrats got her over the parliamentary threshold by nine votes. The
0: BBC's Jenny Hill. Mrs Merkel struggled to form a government. She's now got one, a coalition with her old allies, the Social Democrats. But the process has damaged her standing, and many here wonder whether she'll serve a full fourth term. For now, though, her reappointment reassures her global allies, who've had to do without Mrs Merkel while she was preoccupied with domestic politics. Among those eagerly anticipating her return to the European stage, the French president Emmanuel Macron, who wants, needs her support for his plans to reform the EU. Doctors at Zimbabwe's
2: main state hospital are on strike. Patients have been turned away with only emergency cases being attended to. The strike, which seeks to pressure the government for salary increases and address drug shortages in the hospital, has spread since starting two weeks ago among junior doctors. Labour unrest could pose a test for President Emerson Nangagwa, who came to power in November after the fall of Robert Mugabe. Zimbabwe's economy has been on a downturn for nearly two decades and cash shortages have been experienced for more than a year with banks running out of banknotes. Thousands of African migrants trapped in Libya have been safely returned to their home countries through the United Nations Voluntary Humanitarian Return Program. However, the International Organization on Migration says many of them are extremely traumatized after suffering serious abuses, adding that their immediate medical and psychological needs have taken priority. The rescue of the African refugees follows an international outcry in the wake of reports of their abuse in the Libyan detention centers, with some being sold as slaves in markets in the capital, Tripoli. British Prime Minister Theresa May is expected to announce a series of measures against Russia after it failed to meet a UK deadline to explain how a nerve agent was used to poison a former double agent living in England. Russia has denied any involvement in the attempted murder of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulio in the city of Salisbury. The BBC's James Landale.
3: This morning Theresa May will be briefed by her National Security Council. The Prime Minister will then authorise a series of measures against Russia for what she believes was an unlawful use of force against the UK. These are expected to involve the expulsion of a substantial number of Russian diplomats, significant financial sanctions against wealthy Russians with links to the Kremlin, and possible curbs on the Russian-funded TV station RT. The Russian embassy in London warned that Moscow would respond to any punitive action and hinted that British diplomats would be vulnerable.
2: And lastly, the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, has withdrawn his country from the International Criminal Court just a month after he began to look into his war on drugs. Thousands of people have been killed either by police or unidentified attackers since Duterte took office two years ago. The BBC's Howard Johnson.
3: In a written statement handed to the media, Mr Duterte said he was withdrawing from the court because of what he called a concerted effort by the United Nations to paint him as a ruthless and heartless violator of human rights. Mr Duterte said the acts he's alleged to have committed weren't crimes against humanity because the police killings during drugs operations were carried out in self-defense. He added that he believed the ICC's inquiry was in violation of due process. Human rights groups say many of the killings were premeditated.
2: Channel Africa News, I'm Onilene Sinsi.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: Thank you, Onele, for that news update. You are tuned in to Africa Digest. My name is Zikona Miso. Sierra Leone will hold a presidential runoff vote on March 27th. This was announced by the West African country's Independent Electoral Commission. The runoff comes after the main opposition party finished slightly ahead of the ruling party in the first round of voting in last week's election. Opposition leader Julius Madabayo from the Sierra Leone People's Party took 43.3% of votes, while Samura Kamara of the ruling All People's Congress took 427 The threshold to win in the first round was 55%, and the results were slightly delayed by recounts in some areas. The two parties have dominated the country's politics and ruled alternately since independence from Britain in 1961. Sierra Leone journalist Elias Bangura has more from the capital, Freetown.
4: Mr. BIO got, um, of the Sierra Leone uh, People's Party, that is the main opposition party, he got 43%. And uh, in total, he has, in terms of numbers, he has um, 1,097,748, uh, a little over. And then Mr. Samura Kamara, 1,082,482. So that's about um, almost less than a percentage in terms of um, um, a lead over the incumbent about 15,000 votes. That's about a percent in total. But um, with the vote, we see, we notice that um, the the opposition did well in terms of votes. Um, in terms of almost everything, as it is. So even though they are saying the opposition, the opposition is claiming that uh, they won the victory, they won the, the the vote. But as per valid votes cast what we have from the National Electoral Commission is that uh, the main opposition led, minus, minus invalids and other things, and many other things, but the opposition has been made to accept this vote, and they said they are ready for to, to go into the runoff as it is.
5: Now, the pundits were putting their money on the ruling party's candidate, Dr. Kamara, to win convincingly, but he came second, as you mentioned. This is, of course, the second time that Madabio has uh, tried uh, for the country's uh, top uh, job. What is it about Madabio that seems to be gravitating the electorate uh, towards him?
4: You must understand the dynamics, first of all, which is that uh, the opposition main people party, this is a traditional party. It is the fourth party in Sierra Leone. Mind you, it has a a huge I mean, uh, it's an established institution and uh, the APC, which happens to be in governance at the moment, is an offshoot of the SAP itself so in terms of numbers in terms of support the Sierra Leone People's Party has a huge support base regardless of who leads it it is not just because it is Mr. Bio that is leading it whoever happens to lead the, the main opposition at the moment will have that comment of amount of vote same story for Mr. Kamara's party Samoa Kamara's party the APC now Um, if I will just put the argument that why the, everybody else is gravitating towards the main opposition. This is the reason. The vote
5: totally process uh, was also hit by numerous allegations of uh, irregularities. What did the Electoral Commission have to say about uh, these irregularities when it announced uh, the runoff date?
4: Um, that was also a surprise to the media and a surprise to many other people in terms of the irregularities. Right now, both the Sierra Leone People's Party and the All People Congress are saying that uh, most of these votes came from their own heartland, but uh, on second thought, I think they are also denying it again. Now, what we are talking about is almost 221 polling stations were cancelled because of irregularities. Whatever the nature of those irregularities are, the National Electoral Commission didn't say. So, in, in, what they had to say was that uh, this vote, because of irregularities, has been cancelled, and they didn't form part of the final votes that are uh, we are declaring that. So they didn't say what those irregularities were, but what we know was that uh, in terms of um, um, region, in terms of place, we had uh, those 221 votes we are cancelled, came from the heartland of uh, the main opposition and also the ruling All People Congress party.
5: Now, the runoff period, uh, Mr. Bangura, also may heighten the risk of electoral violence. In fact, uh, yesterday Amnesty International called on the uh, the government to ensure that sierra Leoneans, i can speak and campaign freely in the second round talk to us about uh, the current mood in the country what is the mood like
4: thank you very much it's, it's yesterday. Prior to the announcement, prior to the announcement, the whole country was tense. I mean, everybody had huge expectations because the opposition main people's party. We are saying that uh, they they are going to form the next government within just. I mean, I mean, in a matter of hours, you can see that through the media in terms of their reportage, the papers, the media that was sympathetic to the opposition. They are saying their president is just few hours away from being declared winner, and everybody else was alert and tense. And all of this. But uh, at the end of the day, we saw the military, we saw the police parading the streets, the high, the main streets of Freetown. At, at least where I was, I saw them myself going up and down, trying to ensure that. Uh, I mean, when finally the results were read, nobody will say will, will come out in terms of a uh, violence. So when the results finally came out, uh, that there was going to be a huge runoff. there was quietness. There was a huge sigh of relief because uh, rather than coming out in violence, we saw people jubilation. And I look across from the end where I am in Freetown is mostly dominated by the All People's Congress um, party, and I and I had celebrations, jubilations, and that jubilation spread across the city in the sense that, I mean, people started coming out, uh, oh, well, we have a runoff and all of this.
1: That's Elias Bangura, journalist in Sierra Leone on the cap- from the capital, Freetown, talking there to Kumbero Munzerere. The Southern African Institute of Steel Construction says the U.S. president's decision to raise steel import taxes by 25% and aluminum by 10% could hurt Africa's steel industry, which is already strained. The United States has announced the tariff increases just over two weeks ago, a move which marked the latest a protectionist measure to be imposed by the Trump administration. The announcement has also caused much concern in Africa's steel industry, which has been reeling as well from years of soaring administered prices for transport and electricity. Now, according to Paulo Tinkero, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Southern African Institute of Steel Construction, the tariff increase proposals will hurt Africa's sector severely.
6: Well, I think from our perspective, uh, with a flat South African market, uh, we desperately need um, a healthy export market, and we do export a significant amount of steel to the United States. Uh, typically, well below their threshold. It's around one and a half percent of the of the global. Ec- uh, import uh, but for us it is significant, both for our upstream mills like ArcelorMittal and, um, and for our downstream uh, producers.
5: In his announcement, uh, Trump said he is implementing these measures uh, to protect domestic market. What could he have done uh, differently here, do you think, uh, uh, to achieve uh, the same objectives? What would be the right approach uh, to address this?
6: I think the right approach would be similar to what we as a South African industry have had to do, is to use WTO mechanisms um, essentially to ensure that countries are competing fairly with American manufacturers. That would have been a much better approach than a blanket 25% tariff on the basis of uh, security concerns.
5: Now, in responding to these uh, tariffs, uh, Mr. Trinchero, the world's uh, biggest, steel still produces uh, China as as well as uh, the European Union are uh, threatening retaliatory action do you think uh, this is the way to go
6: uh, well I think it, it certainly doesn't help the situation because it will negatively impact world trade um, certainly from a South African perspective I know the Department of Trade and industry and government is currently engaging with the with the US authorities to see if there is a, a, a let's say a negotiated approach uh, going forward
5: Now, the South African steel industry is undergoing huge structural changes brought about by factors that include the 2008 global financial crisis. Just talk to us about what the custom data shows in terms of South Africa's steel exports. What percentages of steel exports are likely to be affected by these tariffs?
6: Well, essentially the bulk of our exports around 80% because a lot of it is primary steel. In other words, the steel that uh, companies like ArcelorMittal manufacture Manufacturer uh, and Cape Gate Manufacturer, and of course, some of the midstream products like tube and pipe, which we've been exporting to America, which is used in areas like the oil and gas industry. So it's, it's 10% of our total exports, and for us, it's not necessarily the loss of market in America, but also the fact that all those companies that are currently exporting to America are going to look for alternative markets, such as South Africa and Southern Africa.
5: Have you been engaging with uh, your counterparts in uh, the African continent uh, just to find out how they feel about uh, these looming tariffs?
6: From our perspective, we have been looking at some of our downstream manufacturers, particularly in the tube and pipe industry, and they are also very concerned um, as it will, of course, affect their market. But I think the point that you raise is we should possibly be engaging a lot more with our African counterparts who come forward with Unified front for the benefit of of Africa.
1: That was uh, Paula Tinkera, the chief executive officer of the Southern African Institute of Steel Construction, talking to Kumero Munzerere. You tuned into Africa Digest, and this is Channel Africa, where we broadcast everything from an African perspective.
0: Let us all unite and
7: This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National (laughs) Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and a party. This
2: year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president. Nelson Kholithatha Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's International Public Service Radio Station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating a hundred years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective.
1: Welcome back to Africa Digest with myself, Zikona Mison. The United Nations Deputy Secretary General in charge of Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Rescue has concluded a two-day visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mark Lowcock met with some of the country's authorities and visited areas facing serious humanitarian crises, especially in the Tanganyika province. He said an amount of 1.7 billion U.S. dollars is needed to bring response to the humanitarian problems of the DRC. jean Bamweze reports from
8: Kinshasa.
9: A high-level humanitarian conference on the Democratic Republic of Congo is to be held next April in Geneva, and that's where the U.N. Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs will officially make the appeal. That's indeed what the UN Deputy Secretary General in charge of humanitarian affairs and emergency rescue told the press conference here in Kinshasa on Tuesday as he concluded his two-day visit in this country. Mark Ko put it clear that the amount of 1.7 billion US dollars the UN coordination of humanitarian affairs is seeking will respond to the needs of 10 million people who have been identified all over the country
6: we are this year seeking 1.7 billion dollars for the UN humanitarian appeal for the Democratic Republic of Congo to save lives and reduce the suffering of 10 million people here on the 13th of April will be bringing the international community together in Geneva for the first ever high-level humanitarian conference for the DRC. We greatly look forward there to being joined by senior representatives of the government. We will be seeking pledges of financial support there for the UN's humanitarian response plan. But beyond money, it will be a collective opportunity to reaffirm that we care about this country, that we care about those who are suffering, and that we want to help them.
9: On his trip, the UN Deputy Secretary General in charge of humanitarian affairs and emergency rescue was accompanied by the Dutch Minister of Development Cooperation, Sigrid Kork. Together, they met some of this country's authorities. Mark Lecoq visited some areas in the Tanganyika province in the southeast of the Democratic Republic of Congo, a visit that has come only a few days after the UN Deputy Coordinator of Humanitarian Affairs here. Julian Hannes visited the different areas facing humanitarian crisis. A visit after which Julian Hannes told the Channel Africa the nature of the crisis facing the Democratic Republic of Congo is not a one-year crisis but a several-years problem that's really going to last. Last year, we received $500 million for the humanitarian response in Congo. As you say, I've been across all of the areas of conflict, from uh, up in the north in Bunya, where there's currently ongoing fighting, down through Goma, Bukavu, down to Tanganyika in the south, Kalemi, Nyunzu, and also to the Kassais. The size of the crises and the, the nature of the crises in Congo are such that they're going to last and uh, regrettably we're not just looking at one years of crises and then everything's going to stop we're looking at several years of problems and therefore we need to be able to build and federate support around the congo over that period of time so we'll be looking to build a an international campaign to support Congo support the Congolese this humanitarian crisis the Democratic Republic of Congo is facing is due to different conflicts in these countries, different areas and indeed the situation continues as there are always new conflicts that force more people out of their village jean Noel Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa
1: A report by Jean Wall brings the time to 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. The Southern African region has received a US$22.5 million grant to help fight TB in the mining sector. The grant was signed yesterday between Regional Coordinating Mechanism and the Global Fund in Johannesburg. According to the World Health Organization, the Southern African community has some of the highest incidences of TB. For more on this issue, we join now on the line by SARM's Chairperson, Donald Tobaiwa. Good day, Donald, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Good evening, rather.
10: Good evening how are you
1: I'm very well Donald let's reflect a little bit about uh, just the general burden of tb in the region and really the importance of targeting the mining sector
10: uh, so the region has a high burden uh, of tb uh, 350 100,000 in southern africa alone uh, that's too huge a burden and uh, africa southern africa is among the very highest burden countries and it's also faced with a triple burden of TB, TB-HIV and uh, multi-drug resistant TB. And currently the incident rate uh, is around 2,500 to 3,000 per uh, 100,000, which is, uh, especially in the mining communities, this is 10 times the emergency threshold that's set by WHO. So uh, it also provides the highest incidence of TB in other working populations uh, in the world. So that's the reason why the focus is on TB in the mining uh, mm-hmm. sector. And again, if you look at um, uh, 9.6 million work days are lost each year uh, due to, uh, to TB. So if economically calculating, that's what it means.
1: Mm. Now, the the grant signing, Donald, um, it uh, represents uh, the second phase of the TB program implementation within the sector. What were some of the successes of the first phase implemented uh, between twenty sixteen and last year?
10: The first phase uh, saw the development of uh, uh, quite a number of studies, development of models uh, that also then informs this current phase in terms of implementation. It also saw the construction of 11 occupational health service centers. These are one-stop uh, occupational health service centers in uh, eight countries uh, in southern Africa. It also saw the development of the cross-border referral system uh, platform as well as mobile application uh, uh, screening models. Uh, for small scale miners, for established mining entities, as well as the regional health management information system. Uh, including the Community Systems Strengthening Toolkit as well as strategies. So uh, we had major milestones
1: in the first phase. Now the uh, talk us through the identified gaps now within the TB in the mining sector, the program uh, which uh, this new grant will help address. I know that you've highlighted some of the major issues which in the sector, but um, let's look at how the program itself will be addressing
8: these issues.
10: So the program will really unlock uh, opportunities for compensation uh, to uh, former South African ex-mine makers who are in the region and uh, also give an opportunity to find the missed cases of TB in Southern Africa because currently globally we have 40% uh, cases that are missed in the system. Uh, So this will present opportunities to find those missing cases, as well as also uh, give us more opportunities for contact tracing uh, and ensure that we have uh, people that are put on treatment that then complete their treatment. It will also uh, give us an opportunity to interrogate uh, our gaps around silicosis and also mitigate around pl- uh, uh, the issues of prolonged exposure to silica dust in mine shafts. So that then will facilitate uh, pre-treatment is an early identification. Uh, it also uh, covers the issues around poor access to routine health services, uh, particularly among uh, contract uh, workers. But most importantly, because we're looking at regional uh, uh, dynamics, we we'll also have an opportunity to interrogate the internal as well as the cross-border migratory uh, patterns and systems between communities and mine locations as mm. well as between countries. So. People be traveling. I mean, people normally traveling from South Africa to Zimbabwe, to Malawi, to Lesotho. Uh, so X9 makers then can be traced using the cross-border referral systems. Over and above yeah. us mobilizing communities uh, through gender and human rights centric uh,
1: intervention. It certainly sounds like uh, you've got your work cut out for you there, but uh, we know that the signing uh, of the grant uh, comes also ahead of World TB Day, which is set for the 24th, 24th of this month. Uh, what's the focus for this year's commemoration?
10: Yes, indeed, uh, the signing came at the right time, and uh, especially the 24th of March. Uh, so the theme for 2018 is uh, Wanted, uh, Leaders for a TB Free World. You can make history, you need to end TB. So that's the theme for, for this year, and our focus is ensuring that uh, we reach out to those um, these cases, but using the leaders as role models, and the leaders in- ensuring that uh, they make history by engaging in TB, because TB is essential to all disease, so we need to ensure that in TB is curable. Uh, so we need to ensure that we reach out to as many people, and people are mobilized to ensure that they are on treatment. So the day is an occasion to mobilize political and social commitment for further progress towards eliminating TB with a public health burden.
1: Well, Donald, so thank you so much for joining us this evening and really breaking down for us how this uh, grant is going to accelerate all those efforts that you're making into um, turning things around when it does come to TB. For people who are listening right now and who would like to get more information around all of this and just TB in general, uh, where can they go?
10: They can go to the uh, website, uh, the TEAMS website is uh, www.teams.co.za.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Donald, and have a good evening.
10: Thank you. Pleasure.
1: That was Donald Tabaiwa, chairperson of the Southern African Regional Coordination Mechanism, just giving us an outline of exactly how that twenty-two point five million US dollar grant is going to help fight TB, particularly within the mining sector. We'd love to get your thoughts on that. Do tweet us at Channel Africa One, text us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five, or you can simply email us. That is to info at channelafrica.co.za. My name is Zikon Amiso. This is Africa Digest. Stay with us.
5: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, SiLozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye simu, sasa, na
11: komodia.
3: Farafina.
2: Terra do Soleil.
11: Está na companhia do Serviço em Língua Portuguesa do Canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Joanesburg, África do Sul. mu África.
5: Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: Welcome back to Africa Digest. It's time now for our news headlines with Onel
2: Angela Merkel has been sworn in as German Chancellor for a fourth term. Doctors at Zimbabwe's main state hospital go on strike and thousands of African migrants trapped in Libya have been safely returned to their home countries. Channel African News, I am Onelin Lynn This
0: is Africa Digest.
12: Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa
5: Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700 Hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700 Hours Central African Time show. The 1900 Hours Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms channel africa giving you an african perspective
1: South Africa's Department of Energy says no interdict was granted, stopping it from signing 27 independent power producer contracts with private sector companies yesterday. This follows news that two organisations, the National Union of the Metal Workers of South Africa and Transform RSA, obtained an urgent last-minute interdict against the Energy Department Minister, Joe Kadebe, signing these producer agreements. In a statement on Tuesday morning, the Energy Department said that while the court had not granted an interdict, the department decided to voluntarily postpone the signing of the spirit of constitutionalism and the rule of law. For more on the technicalities around this matter, here's President of Transform RSA, Adil Nchabeling.
13: We actually are in communication with the department through our lawyers. They should by now have already requested because we can't as an independent organisation now just engage the you know, department. This is a legal process ongoing and uh, we are following the legal route process.
11: Um, and the Department of Energy statement reads, after arguments were concluded, the court refused to grant an interim interdict against ASCOM or the minister, but instead postponed the matter to 27 March 2018, with the responding parties to file their answering papers by 20 March 2018. The department says there was no interdict, um, Mr. Njabiling. Um What do you say to that?
13: <laughs> what was the decision then for granting the application for urgency then? We live in an age whereby, you know, spin doctors are doing quite a wonderful, fantastic job, and to a point where they're misleading public in a very different way. And it's not actually helpful. Government must learn to communicate things in the manner in which it is correct. They were there. The state attorney was present. The attorneys for the department were present. The advocates for the department were present, and well as, what do you call it, all the legal team. So I cannot give you a position of, the Department of Energy. I can give you the transformer essays position and explain to you what transpired during the process.
11: So what and transpired during out. the process? What
13: was issued out by the? You no, know, just hold on. What was issued out as a statement by the Department of Energy? We have no knowledge of that particular statement they chose to issue out. But we understand that they had a reason in order to issue that statement, and their reason are been known to them. But that whole statement is not what transpired in the court.
11: Okay, so what transpired then, um, in um, in your opinion?
13: The matter was heard on the basis of agency, and it was granted the agency because it actually passed the uh, rule for agency in terms of the test for agency. And on those basis, the minister actually gave an undertaking in court by his legal representatives that they will not go forward with signing of the IPPs until Mm -hmm. the matter has been heard.
11: Um, Mr. Chabaleng, maybe if you can briefly take us through some of your specific submissions.
13: Yeah, our submissions were simple. The process had to be halted on the basis that there are ramifications with regards to one, the jobs, there are ramifications with regards to the cost of the project, there are ramifications with regards to the uncertainty of what actually the government is entering into and the interim interim program, which is the IPPs. The long-term effect of this particular uh, independent power producer, tender contacts that are going to be awarded have to be fully, fully clarified, and every requirement by the law must be fulfilled, as well as what it is required in the Constitution. Because government is signing itself up for a period of 20 years, and with that 20 years, it is giving a guarantee of standing in and making sure that it will fulfill its obligation. So we are saying that the application is based on those aspects of the merits that it has to do with everything that we've raised in the application. The, uh, you know, the court application is available online. People can go and check it from the, what do you call it, the sources that already have been reporting on it. It's very clear. The, you know, thing we actually hold as our basis for our argument is very simple. The current IPP tender contracts will cripple ESCOM's balance sheet. And the cost of the utility in terms of coming into an IPP right now is extremely prohibitive. That is what we're standing on as our position. And that position is based on the financial statement as well as current ESCOM's financial position. ESCOM's financial statements indicates very clearly that ESCOM as an SS, as what you call a state-owned entity does not have enough liquidity to invest in an IPP program and give out agreements. And what will happen in the long-term future is you will have a liquidity challenge and ESCOM will start failing to pay its creditors. And what will happen in the interim is that The creditors will come after ESCOM, and ESCOM will go into a default. So this is the situation we're looking at right now.
11: Um, There really isn't a lot of time between now and the 20th of March. So um, what's going to be happening uh, from now and the 20th of March?
13: Look, the process is unfolding whereby all the parties have been requested to come forward to the court and actually present their whole heads of arguments and uh, whatever it is that they're going to put forward as an issue. The matter will be presented before the court, and the judge presiding or the judges presiding will hear the matter, and the decision will be given on those bases. There is no presumption that this matter will be in any way prejudiced or unprejudiced. So we are open to the process of engagement. All parties must come to the table and actually present their side of the story. And then based on our side of the story, we say this is going to be of dire consequences, particularly to the consumers. And not only that, we have workers currently that are represented by even our, you know, supporting a union, which is now NUMSA. People are going to lose thousands of jobs.
1: That was President of Transform RSA, Adil Chabeleng on the line to Spumelele Zondi. And now to the big questions, life, the universe and everything, Dr Stephen Hawking who's died at age 76, contemplated and explored those big questions. And while many other physicists and scientists have been engaged with those subjects, to Stephen Hawking, who in so doing captured the public's imagination, his project of trying to discover where the universe came from was one he pursued for more than 50 years under the shadow of motor neuron disease which robbed him of movement and the power of speech. Nevertheless, he came to symbolize the power of the human mind a mind that remained one of the most inspirational in the world of science. He thought Big Thoughts was a best-selling author, appeared in many films and cartoons, and was possibly the best-known and beloved scientist of all time. Quite a life to look back at, as the BBC's Rebecca Morrell reports.
14: Hello, my name is Stephen Hawking.
15: The instantly recognisable voice of the cosmologist who became a cultural icon. Stephen Hawking brought physics to the mainstream.
14: I think my achievement has been to help to show that time as we know it has a beginning in the Big Bang and an end in black holes.
15: And he was an inspiration to many for accomplishing all of this despite a debilitating disease.
14: Theoretical physics is one of the few fields in which being disabled is no handicap. It's all in the mind.
15: It was at university that Stephen Hawking's talent for science began to shine through. He found physics ridiculously easy and didn't have to work that hard. Stephen's mother, Isabel, spoke to the BBC in 2002. I think Stephen was a very normal young man. He liked parties. He liked pretty girls, only pretty ones. He liked liked adventure. And he did, to some extent, like work. But there were already signs that something wasn't right, and while studying for his PhD at Cambridge University, he was diagnosed with a form of motor neuron disease, a degenerative condition that causes progressive weakness and muscle wastage. The Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees, was a postgraduate student with Stephen.
3: I remember this uh, young man already walking with difficulty, who was uh, embarked on his thesis and was told that he may not live to finish his PhD.
15: But he defied this prognosis and went on to make his biggest theoretical breakthroughs.
3: I suppose his greatest single achievement, the one he said he wanted to have inscribed on his gravestone, was an equation which linked together three previously unconnected areas of physics. It linked together the nature of gravity, the quantum principle and thermodynamics. And this is a so-called Hawking radiation So Stephen will basically be talking about infinity.
15: As Professor Hawking's condition progressed, his speech became increasingly slurred. And after a bout of pneumonia that nearly killed him, he lost his capacity to speak entirely. He had to use a speech synthesizer, which created the voice that became his trademark.
14: People describe the accent as American, but the Americans say it is Scandinavian or Irish. Anyway... Whatever it is, everyone can understand it.
15: Around this time, too, Professor Hawking turned to writing. The most successful of his mainstream books was A Brief History of Time, published in 1988. Kitty Ferguson is his biographer. The underlying motive for writing that book was to make science and his work
1: understandable to what he calls ordinary people, like like you and I. There's only one equation
15: in the book, and that's E equals MC squared. At home, though, Professor Hawking's life was turbulent. He divorced his first wife and went on to marry one of his nurses. He described this marriage as passionate and tempestuous. There were even allegations that his second wife physically abused him although he always denied this. Cambridgeshire
0: Police are investigating allegations of an assault on Stephen Hawking, a disabled scientist
15: and author of the best-selling book, A Brief History of Time. Despite his private life occasionally appearing in the media, Professor Hawking generally liked fame. He toured the world, was invited onto chat shows, and in 2014 was portrayed by Eddie Redmayne in a film about his life. He even appeared on The Simpsons.
14: the world's smartest man.
15: What are you doing here? His daughter Lucy spoke about her father's love of the limelight in 2012. Another facet my father that people don't very rarely highlight is what a showman he is. He's a bit of an impresario at heart and he loves a big show, a big stage, bright lights, whether it's him on stage or whether it's watching the spectacle. Underneath it all though, Martin Rees found his friend's ordinariness extraordinary.
3: What was amazing all through his life was the way, despite his immense handicaps, he remained so psychologically normal. Uh, not only in being able to continue with his science, but also in his interest in current affairs, his willingness to express robust opinions, and his enjoyment in activities quite away from his science.
15: Stephen Hawking will be remembered for turning almost unimaginable adversity into something he described at times as an advantage, and it was this attitude that made him an inspiration for so many.
14: I hope my example will give encouragement and hope to others in similar situations. Never give up.
1: That report by the BBC's Rebecca Moral.
13: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective.
1: Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French, and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalun and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective.
5: Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: It's time now for our economic update with Wisani Matebula.
12: Good evening. Thanks, Ezikona. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says South Africa can learn from other countries on how to achieve economic recovery. He was speaking in the National Assembly during his maiden oral reply session as President. Ramaphosa says South Africa's economic recovery can be achieved with the support of labor, government and business.
7: We can see that investor confidence has improved quite significantly. It is therefore critical that we mobilize all social partners to unite behind a common program of economic recovery and transformation. And we can take a leaf from how a number of other economies around the world have had to address their own economic woes. Countries such as Ireland, Netherlands, South Korea and Sweden have in the past successfully forged what one can call social compacts to drive economic growth
12: meanwhile Ramaphosa says next month as national job summit will focus on practical measures that will lead to the creation of jobs for young people
7: over the course of the next few months we will be engaging social partners in preparation for the national job summit the summit which is being looked forward to by many sectors in our country will agree on a series of practical measures that will create jobs particularly amongst young people the outcomes of that summit will form an important part of the broader social compact that we are striving to build
12: and south african revenue service has confirmed that its deputy commissioner jonas Makwakwa has resigned effective immediately. SARS Commissioner Tom Moyane said Makwakwa finally agreed to disclose his tax return report, but only to the House and the Finance Minister Nene. Makwakwa was reinstated to his position last year after he was suspended following an internal disciplinary inquiry into his conduct. Makwakwa's alleged to have misled SARS with regards to declarations of interest in the appointment of National Integrated Credit Solutions as one of eight debt collectors to recover debt owed to SARS, Addressing the media in Pretoria, Moyane said SARS was fully cooperating with the Financial Intelligence Centre in its investigation into Makwakwa's alleged tax irregularities.
9: The FIC submitted the investigation report during the course of May 9, 2016. Upon the receipt of the report, I engaged with the FIC with regard to the need of the FIC and South to cooperate with each other in respect of an investigation into allegations of corruption, money laundering, and possible violation of tax data statutes against Mr. Makwako. The FIC submitted the report to the Hawks and the Hawks had commenced with a criminal invest- its criminal investigation. This criminal investigation is ongoing and SARS is fully cooperating with the investigation. It must be noted that SARS did not receive then the much needed assistance and this process took longer than anticipated.
12: The International Monetary Fund has approved Kenya's request for a six-month extension to a 1.5 billion US dollar standby facility to allow the nation to complete re- reviews of the lender-supported program. The government sought an extension to the facility to complete the delayed reviews before embarking on talks about a new potential program. The current agreement comprises a $990 million dollar arrangement repayable with interest over five years, and a $495 million interest-free credit repayable over eight years. And U.S. oil production is set to rise further this year, but the crude market will continue to rebalance as cartel members and Russia trim their output in a bid to support prices. The U.S. supply increase is expected to come as the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries, dominated by oil giant Saudi Arabia, works with Russia to slash output of the prices for crude Plummeted to around 30 US dollars per barrel in 2016 from over 100 dollars two years earlier. Shale oil, which accounts for the majority of the US supply, is expensive to produce and is therefore unprofitable when prices are low. Now your financial indicators: the dollar at 11.8, South African rand at 9.4, Botswana pula 9.6, Zambian kwacha. Commodities: gold is at a thousand. $327, platinum $967 per fine ounce, brand crude oil $64.70 per barrel. That's your economics news.
1: Time for our sports update with Musibudi Makura.
8: Thank you, Zikona. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with rugby news, Springbok coach Rossi Erasmus is reportedly set to meet the former national coaches to discuss the challenges that await him in his new role. The aim of the meeting is for Erasmus to discuss challenges the former coaches encountered during their stints in charge, what they learned from the experiences, and what, um, um, what they would do differently this time around. It is not known yet which former Springbok coaches will be invited to attend the meeting. Proteus speedster Achis Rabada has appealed to the ICC suspension that he will, will see him miss the rest of the Australian series. Rabada was on Monday banned for two test matches for his incident with Steve Smith and the second test against Australia in Port Elizabeth. The 22-year-old was found guilty on a level 2 charge after brushing shoulders with Australian skipper after he had got him out on LBW. and As a result, Rabada was given three ICC demerit points, taking his total to eight enough to see him suspended. Cricket South Africa then had 48 hours to appeal the decision and they confirmed this afternoon that they were doing so. On to local football news, Orlando Pirates veteran defender Happy Jelle has hailed the coaching skills of former teammate and current Cape Town City head coach Benny McCarthy ahead of the NetBank Cup round of 16 match at Cape Town Stadium this evening. The pair shared memorable moments at Pirates helping the Soweto Giants to a treble victory back in 2012. City also appointed former Pirates video assistant and reserve league coach Ryan Jacobs to serve as McCarthy's assistant last week. Jelly says um, that uh, the post won't count for much this evening.
13: He's been doing well for the first time in coaching, you know, first year. So he's doing well and uh, I know him as well personally. So obviously he knows most of the players that are, are playing for Pirates because we played with them, you know. But uh, when we're there, it's a war, my friend. So uh, we're going to see what's going to happen because we're looking forward to, to win the game.
8: While Pirates are currently in fine form having scored um, a rather secured successive victories in their previous four matches in their most recent match they defeated their Soweto rivals Kars Achieves 3-1 in the APSA Premiership more than a week ago the 31-year-old defender attributes the club's improved form to changes in the technical team as well as playing personnel
13: Look, it's new players, new coaches so it needs to change and it's very to the players to adapt quickly you know, it's not like before. Uh, if you have 18 players, you know, then it's only one coach. Come, it's the same players playing. But now it's changed. It's, it's, maybe you find it's two players that are playing last season or three players. So it's, it's, it's a change. So that's why everyone it can adapt quickly.
8: The Zai Sports News at the Sun. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: And recapping the top stories this hour on Africa Digest, Sierra Leone is to hold a presidential runoff vote on March 27th and today marks the start of the third annual anti-racism week in South Africa. Well, that's how we wrap things up for Africa Digest for now. For myself, Zekona Miso, my producer, Luanda Maume, and my technical producer, Swiso Vashiko, as well as the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email at info at or via WhatsApp on plus 27823325905. Well, that's how we wrap things up. We'll leave you with the sounds of Busim Llango. This one is titled Yehli Enjoy.